Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is John L. Esposito, who is University Professor of Religion and International Affairs and founding director of the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at the Walsh School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University. A past president of the Middle, Middle East Studies Association, he's editor-in-chief of the four-volume Oxford Encyclopedia of the Modern Islamic World, editor of the Oxford History of Islam and the author of numerous books including Unholy War, Terror in the Name of Islam and The Islamic Threat, Myth or Reality and most recently uh, The Oxford Dictionary of Islam. Professor Esposito, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you, thank you for having me. Where were you born and raised? Raised in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And looking back, how do you think your parents uh, shaped your thinking about the world? Well, I think that my parents gave me uh, was an appreciation for education um, and, uh, you know, a sense of being curious. Um, they didn't so much get me into the area of international affairs. Um, that came much later in my life. Uh, my first track was to go off to a monastery for 10 years. Hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that was part of my background. It was only later that I, I got on with uh, my real life, uh, which uh, parenthetically I should mention I married 37 years, so oh, there were two sides to my life. That's and so what did turn you on to international affairs? I was finishing a degree in what I thought was a degree in uh, world religions with a focus on Hinduism and Buddhism. I'd already done graduate work in Catholic theology and was teaching that actually at a college. And the chairman of the department, a man named Bernard Phillips, uh, said to me, you really should do a course in Islam or hiring Muslim scholars. And I basically politely declined. This was 1967. I had very little interest in the Arab world and Muslims. And in many ways, I typified a lot of Americans. What I did know were a group of stereotypes. But he convinced me to take one course uh, with a Muslim scholar. and. Uh, it just turned me on to the whole area. And then that led me into my interest in basically uh, the Muslim world, relations between the West and the Muslim world, and international affairs in general. And where were you at school then? When you Temple University Temple in University. Philadelphia. Yeah. And did you have any educational mentors in addition to the one that you just mentioned who, who really sort of shaped Yeah, my main, my main mentor was Ismail al-Furqi, who was mm -hmm. a Palestinian Muslim scholar. And then um, we also, during that time, had an Egyptian, Hassan Hanafi, uh, who is um, uh, back teaching at Cairo University. Those were the, the people in, in my formative years, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at, at your works, I, I, I think you, you convey a very strong sense of the, of the way uh, that we misperceive uh, uh, the Islamic world. And so I thought I'd begin talking about your work by asking you, when, when a, a Muslim looks around, what, is, what does he see when he thinks about the West, just the, the typical Muslim? I, I, I feel that we don't have a sense of their perception of us. Yeah. I think that... Um, you know, the Muslim world in some ways uh, can be as diverse as when we talk about the Western world, the difference between, certainly we see today, between France and America. Mm. Uh, but I think in general, um, whether um, sophisticated or unsophisticated, educated or less than well-educated, uh, many Muslims um, uh, have a sense of, on the one hand, admiring, let's say, America. Uh, that's why so many have come here, want to come here. Um, they come to study, they come to live, they buy property, etc. 
But even though that's the case, there is a sense among many Muslims uh, who feel close to America, let alone uh, extremists, um, that uh, the West, there's been a long history of rivalry. Uh, there's a strong memory of a militant Christianity, the Crusades, and of European colonialism. And um, more recently, a sense that, in general, uh, as great as America is in terms of its principles, when it comes to its foreign policy and its application in the Muslim world, a double standard is seen. And I think the most generic observation also is that, you know, many simply believe um, that um, despite the number of Muslims and their visibility across the world and now in Europe and America, Islam generally still tends to be a misunderstood religion, often seen through caricatures or through um, the headline events that focus on the acts of extremists. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, uh, what, what stands out in the, in the way we misperceive the Islamic world? I think that... Um, we often fail to see the diversity of, you know, that we, we know that there's a diversity, you know, when Muslims say the West, we will say, well, wait a minute, difference between Europe and America. Or when they say the West in Christianity, you know, we will say this isn't Christendom any, long, um, any longer. Um, we tend not to see the diversity of the Muslim world. We tend, until recently, we tended to uh, continuously over the years equate uh, Islam with Arabs, when they only constitute 23% of the Muslims. Uh, We tend, in the past, when we talk about, for example, women, we'd always have images of women in Saudi Arabia or talk about the fact that they couldn't drive cars Mm -hmm. uh, or that there was sexual segregation or that they had to be completely covered in public and and often equate that with what would be the reality, let's say, of Muslims uh, in Egypt or Muslims in Indonesia, Malaysia. I think the other thing is we tend to equate... um, the minority of extremists who are in fact out there and are dangerous with the majority religion. For example, when an extremist Jew assassinates a prime minister of Israel or an extremist Christian commits an action, in our gut as Americans we distinguish that from mainstream Judaism and Christianity. You know, the average person doesn't say, there go those Christians and Jews again. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and we use the word extremist meaning veering from the norm. When Muslim extremists do it, that distinction doesn't occur. Mm. Even when we use the word extremist, we don't really necessarily mean that they're extremists relative to the norm. And of course, that perception gets reinforced by certain voices in the Christian right, Franklin Graham and Robinson, who in fact don't make the distinction themselves. They don't say mm-hmm. extremists are evil, they mm-hmm. say Islam is evil. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, post 9-11, it's become um, exacerbated exponentially. And, and is it uh, ignorance that is the root cause here that, that the extreme should, or the part or the piece uh, should be taken for the whole? I think it's ignorance and reality. Mm-hmm. I think that it's ignorance uh, of the diversity and of the whole, but I think it's also um, the impact of reality, the fact that uh, um, if you don't know a lot about a people, uh, you are going to generalize about them from the realities that you see. And uh, most Americans engaged Islam with the Iranian Revolution and Americans held hostage, and with extremist events mm-hmm. after that, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and certainly the impact of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes it that much more difficult. When we created the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding in 1993, we were to address these issues. And at our last meeting, uh, one of the people on my board said, you know, it's phenomenal what you achieved in the first eight or nine years 
But regrettably, 9-11 has put, put us back 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, what should the average American know about Islam? I mean, what, what are its, its central tenets as a religion that, uh, that, that we don't look at in the, in the context of these misperceptions? I think there are two things. I think one is an awareness that um, there is, in fact, not just a Judeo-Christian, but a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. Mm-hmm. That's what got me interested in Islam. I had studied... Christianity, I'd studied Judaism, I'd studied Hinduism and Buddhism. And when I studied Islam, I thought that I was going to be studying a religion that was over there. Because in those days, in graduate school and even in undergrad, you talked about Judaism, Christianity, and then you put Islam with Hinduism and Buddhism. And suddenly I discovered a religion that, in fact, uh, recognized the revelation of the Torah and the New Testament, recognized Moses and Jesus, traced itself back to the patriarch Abraham and back to, quote, the one true God, uh, shared a vision of moral accountability, human responsibility, had a vision of God, human beings, angels, devils, judgment, uh, etc. I think that was beyond what I could appreciate. And then I think the second thing is for uh, Americans to realize the similarity in many ways uh, uh, in emphasis of uh, Islam and Judaism. Islam and Judaism, in contrast to Christianity, emphasize religious observance. You talk about an observant Jew, an observant Muslim, Hmm. uh, more than dogma or doctrine. And in Islam, recognizing the the five pillars and what they call upon a Muslim to believe in. You know, the the, uh, absolute monotheism, belief in God, prophecy and revelation, uh, prayer five times a day, fasting, pilgrimage, uh, paying a tithe to support those that are poor, that all of that is there, along with then dealing with the issues of uh, violence, radicalism, and extremism. Mm -hmm. Now, why do you think as a a social scientist... uh, uh, this was sudden, uh, such a sudden awakening for you. It suggests that the work had not been done to see these kinds of comparisons before you came along. Why, why do you think that was the case? I, I think that there were a number of things operating. Um, I think that um, history, the encounter of uh, certainly Christendom and, and the Muslim world, while there were many points of cooperation, there were many points of conflict, and a long process then of demonization. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, reflect, it's reflected in Dante's Inferno, for example. Uh, ironically, Dante borrowed uh, from Muslim writings, but then mm-hmm. where he came out in the end, he, he put Muhammad in the lowest of the hells, etc. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, a kind of a period of, uh, um, in, in, at the points of conflict, of, of, of almost mutual Satanization. Um, uh, and I think that um, also there was a, a lack of uh, any real appreciation um, from a scholarly point of view uh, and full knowledge of Islam. We knew a lot more not only about Judaism and Christianity but certainly Hinduism and Buddhism. And this was clearly the case in America. In America, the study of Eastern religions came in in the 60s and 70s. Mm. But the last religion often to be studied or the last faculty members to be hired in those early days were in Islam. Mm-hmm. It t- the interest tended to be in Hinduism, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. And so we had that tendency in terms of our own religion and culture to say we are Jews and Christians, and the rest are over there. Mm -hmm. And immediately that implies that Islam shares an awful lot with Hinduism and Buddhism, 
and not that much with Judaism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, so this sets the ground for the susceptibility to an argument about there being an inevitable clash of civilizations, which yeah. is the argument uh, that Huntington made uh, with uh, uh, the end of the Cold War. What, what is wrong with that argument, and, uh, and, and how do we move beyond it? I think Sam was right in identifying points of conflict. Um, but I think Sam, first of all, came at it as, as indeed most uh, social scientists of, of his uh, era, uh, with a certain kind of bias. To begin with, Sam was one of the founders of the Modernization and Development School, mm-hmm. which he has since moved away from. But the implications at that time of that school um, you know, would have uh, somehow uh, put Islam uh, on the back burner in the back field. Uh, I think also uh, Sam comes from that period, the Cold War period, where you are seeing the world in terms of us and them, um, and doing, um, uh, you know, constantly doing, therefore, looking for the next threat. And it came in a climate where post-Cold War people were looking for the next threat. I think also one could look back at that history of conflict. That would reinforce it, the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. But I think where he was... Uh, wrong was that um, he talks about civilizations. It's not just Islamic, but Chinese, as if they're this monolithic block compared to what? Christian civilization? Mm-hmm. First of all, what does Christian civilization mean? Mm-hmm. Can, we, can, we, can we say that Britain and France, which are very secular countries today, have a great deal of a religious commonality, let's say, with, with America? And, and look at the differences civilizationally among us. The block of Chinese, what, what do Chinese in Mongolia share with Chinese in, in Singapore? And even Islamic civilization, while religiously Muslims see themselves as connected, look at the uh, centuries-long conflict between Iran and Iraq, the conflicts between Egypt, Libya, and the Sudan. So along with any ki- kind of unity, there's always been this enormous diversity. I think that's where Sam was wrong. I think he was right in saying that in the post-Cold War, it's not state-to-state, that religion and ethnicity become stronger, that there is a proliferation, uh, you have a growth of youth uh, in areas that are economically deprived. I think all of that is there. And I think he's right. In many ways today, his theory would be right, because I think we run a risk today on both sides. And this is what I worry about, that if the Bush administration isn't careful in the way that it pursues the war, or it would be any administration in this post-9-11 period, uh, it, along with the extremist on the other side, can in fact promote what will be seen by both sides as a clash of civilizations. And indeed, that's the way in which many on both sides now see it. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's talk a little about Islam and, and this uh, question that you touched upon, which is the relation of, of Islam uh, uh, to modernity. And, and, and one of the, uh, I think, bones of contention is the extent to which it is possible, or uh, let's put it this way, that in our own history, in the history of Western civilization, what emerged over many years, hundreds of years, was a separation of church and state. And we see this as a key element in modernity. And then we, uh, 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 we in quotes, then look at Islam and say, well, that hasn't happened there, and that is a problem. Uh, help me understand what's wrong with, with that kind of reasoning. Well, I think that uh, it is true that it hasn't happened, but I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I think, first of all, on the one hand, you can say, yes, there are uh, many Muslims out there um, who see uh, Islam um, holistically in some ways, that religion is is related to politics and society. But certainly, if we look at uh, pre-modern times, 
Um, this was true of most major world religions to one extent or another. Hinduism uh, related religion to a social system. Christianity talks about separation of church and state. Well, it certainly stopped existing after Constantine. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it was never an absolute mm-hmm. separation, the Holy Roman Empire, but right down through the, the, uh, the ages. Um, I think the modern period, yes, you have that modern transition. But now, where has the space been for any kind of debate about the relationship of religion to state and society in the Muslim world? Uh, Muslim worlds made didn't have a period of transition. You went from centuries of, if you will, Islamic rule of Islamic territories to European colonialism. Colonial powers weren't about uh, addressing these kinds of issues. Uh, post-colonialism, post-independence, let's say a mid-20th century, you wind up with modern nation-states emerging, most of them authoritarian states. So where is the open debate about the relationship of religion to politics? Then the late 60s and 70s come, and with the experience, perception of the failure of modern states, you see the resurgence of religion. And in that resurgence of religion, there's a sense of the discrediting of the modern Western secular model and the uh, reclaiming of Islamic model, but often uh, the Islamic models uh, reclaimed are in fact new creations said to be resurrections of some sort of pristine model. And so the kind of discussion and debate that has gone on in the West has hasn't begun to happen in the Muslim world. I mean, it's begun, but it's been severely restricted. Mm -hmm. There are now Muslim thinkers across the Muslim world uh, talking about issues of Islam and modernity, pluralism and democracy. But clearly, uh, it is a process that is only at the beginning. And the problem is, there isn't very much time to do it. And uh, the nature of regimes will have to change in order for there to be the kind of openness in the educational system, uh, in the media, etc., uh, for uh, the debate that needs to be had. When, when we have this misperception of the Islamic world, which sees everything as boiling down to uh, terrorists hijacking a religion, uh, one misses this, this whole, whole realm of, of what you call the revivalist phenomena. Help us understand that a little, because in, 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 in most of your books, you're, you're grappling with and trying to help us understand uh, the different ways that Islam is trying to change itself as it, it, it confronts uh, both the constraints posed by, by the West uh, on the one hand, but also by the, the local political situation on the other. In the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, as Muslims engaged uh, colonialism, but also looked to the future, you know, what might independence look like, you had a number of schools of thought. You had secularists who emerged and said, there has to be a separation of religion and the state. Um, you had a large body of more conservative uh, sectors led by many of the religious leaders, uh, in effect, circling the wagons in the light of colonialism, and if anything, uh, becoming more entrenched and saying, uh, you don't want to borrow from the enemy, uh, you know, Islam is fine the way it is. You had Islamic modernist thinkers who were saying Islam is compatible with modernity and, and defining it. And then you had the beginnings of Islamic re- revivalist groups who basically said, we don't want to be completely Islamic modernist because they define themselves in terms of Western standards. So they wind up with a westernized Islam, or if you will, a Protestantization of Islam. Uh, Parenthetically, uh, Roman Catholics used to uh, fear that in the mid-20th century when one talked about liberal reform within Catholicism. But 
in the 60s and 70s, late 60s, the Arab-Israeli war, the 67 war, the six-day war, uh, riots in Malaysia in 69, 1971, uh, the civil war in Pakistan, what became Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, mid-70s in Lebanon, and then the Iranian revolution. You find across the Muslim world, for differing reasons, a sense that modernity is failing us. The modern nation state isn't working. These Western models aren't working. And a push mm -hmm. from a minority, but a very strong minority, that say, we need to get back to our religion to reclaim our identity and values. Now, what emerges from that is both governments and reform movements and opposition movements appealing to religion or using religion to buttress their various forms of nationalism, etc. Um, and what emerges also is, on the one hand, uh, a mainstream... Islamic activism, but also a strong, virulent, extremist activism. And, you know, we see it in terms of, for example, when the Iranian Revolution came along in the confrontation with, you know, America. We see this as militant Islam personified. We also saw it in Lebanon with hijackings and hostage-taking. Now, the situation becomes exacerbated with the Soviet-Afghan war. In the Soviet-Afghan war, you have, in fact, what I call a global jihad. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, the struggle, the sacred struggle to the defense of Islam was not only taken up by the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, it was taken up by America, by Europe, mm -hmm. as well as Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, post-Afghan war, a lot of these Mujahideen, those who came from other Muslim countries who were called Afghan Arabs, whether they were Arab or Afghan, they go back to their countries having had a chance to struggle for what they believed and they go back to many of their authoritarian regimes and suddenly find themselves in confrontations with the state. And then a whole set of uh, issues emerges post-Gulf uh, War that leads to the kind of radicalization of people like Osama bin Laden and many of these other groups. Uh, you're touching on something that, that, that's very interesting about Islam, which is this notion of, uh, I guess we can say, the, the global versus the local. And what, what, what one of the roots of our misperception seems to be that we, we are not subtle in seeing the diversity, which you've which you touched upon, which comes about by the local situation transforming I Islam and, and creating a lot of uniqueness in, in the religion, basically. So, so we lose sight of that interplay. Is that fair between, that, that on the one hand there's a global identity and, and the global religion, but on, on, on the other hand there is this mosaic created by all the local situations in which uh, Islam uh, comes into being and is, and is essentially changes and changes the locality. That's right. I mean, there's an enormous uh, difference uh, between Islam as practiced in Saudi Arabia and Islam as practiced uh, in many parts of Africa and certainly in Malaysia and Indonesia. And I know myself, um, I did my studies, but most of my, my teachers were Arab. Uh, and um, so my focus was on the Middle East. And I remember when colleagues invited me to Southeast Asia, I kept thinking, who needs to go? I know what I need to know about Islam. <laughs> you know? right. And when I got to Malaysia and I went through uh, Kuala Lumpur, mm -hmm. the first thing I couldn't believe was how many signs were in Chinese. I wasn't prepared to even deal with that. Mm -hmm. Also, it was during Ramadan. And what I, I couldn't believe was that you could walk into a restaurant and you could have a meal during the hours of fasting. Because, of course, for the Chinese, restaurants were open. Society was moving around. Um, I would also, if you focus with Arab Islam, particularly, let's say, 
especially if you're dealing with the Gulf, you will see uh, you know, uh, far more of a restricted notion when it comes to the use of music and religion. You, know? uh, you then see the way in which uh, in Africa, uh, even the Shahada, the confession of faith, will be chanted to an African beat. Mm-hmm. I remember a colleague of mine had only dealt with the Arab world, and we were in an African country. He was watching this mass demonstration, and he said, my God, this, this would never be allowed in the Arab world. So I think that that appreciation of the local for, for the average American simply isn't there. Just as an appreciation for the, uh, if you will, the average uh, Arab or Muslim. What we know are the leading political leaders, the talking heads, mm-hmm. right? And then we have this other term we use, the Arab street. And most people think the Arab street are sort of the, I don't know what, the, the hoi polloi, the, you know, when in fact, the what mob, we really yeah. mean by the mob, when yeah. in fact, by the Arab street, you really mean a cross-section of society. But it's, yeah, how many Americans engage Mm-hmm. You know, your average uh, Arab or Muslim successful, a business person, professional. That's only been happening very much in recent years. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't on our screen. And I think another thing we forget about America, when I began to study Islam, people said to me, why are you going into that abracadabra field? You'll never get a job. <laughs> Islam was invisible in the mm-hmm. academy in general, except for some major university, invisible in the academy and in our landscape. Today, Islam is the second or third largest religion in American Europe. That wasn't the case in the past. So again, you know, how do we generalize? It's a bit like my youth raised in, in, in Brooklyn in a totally Italian neighborhood, and then I encounter my first Irish person. Mm-hmm. And that Irish person happens to be a classmate who's an attractive young woman, uh, great personality, but gets, gets left back three times. Mm-hmm. in grammar school. What conclusion do I draw? Mm-hmm. Irish people seem to be nice, but not all that bright. Mm-hmm. Or people who engage Italians and conclude that all Italians mm-hmm. are emotive people like myself. Mm-hmm. When in fact there are all kinds of personalities, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's it. And it's certainly, if you just take a look at the movies mm-hmm. and the TV media in the last few years, who are the bad guys? Mm-hmm. How are they portrayed? They're mm-hmm. terrorists, they're people that like to slap their women around. Even on more prominent shows, you look at a show like JAG and go back and look at the way in which Arabs and Muslims have been portrayed on that show and mm-hmm. other shows. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's pretty astonishing. Post 9-11, mm-hmm. it, you know, uh, it's, it's an open field in terms of what one can say and get away with. Now, uh, a good uh, case for that is uh, the, the complexity of the relationship of Islam to democracy. Uh, all over the world, and how, uh, in in our uh, perception and way of looking at it, when when you talk about uh, Muslim politics, you talk about extremism and fanaticism, but but that's no by no means the case. Help us understand that. I mean, there are many experiments uh, with democracy. Uh, 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 dis- the dilemma in Islam about whether you know you have uh, 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 the rule of the Quran and and, and uh, 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 Sharia uh, versus you know the, the rule of people, but but we there is a lot of diversity there and a, a tr- an attempt to kind of come to terms with democracy in an Islamic set- yeah. setting. Uh, talk to us about that. In a book that a colleague of mine, John Vol, and I did a, a few years ago called Islam and Democracy, mm-hmm. one of the first things we try to say is, look, the first thing you have to remember is that democracy has taken many forms in the West, from the Greeks to today, mm-hmm. you know, from direct to indirect, etc. And there are enormous differences in terms of the relationship of religion and the state, 
if you look at the United States vis-a-vis -vis Canada or Germany. And the issue with Islam is often, how come there is no democracy? Or very little. Isn't it that there's a contradiction between Islam and democracy or uh, democracy and Arab culture? What I try to say to people is distinguish between pre-modern and modern. Judaism and Christianity and all world religions that began in pre-modern times legitimated divine forms of government, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kings, etc., feudal systems of government. Then they reinterpret themselves. Okay? Uh, whether or not and to what extent uh, Muslims will do that remains the case. But what we do see in recent years is countries that have experimented with democracy, uh, Pakistan, Malaysia, uh, Turkey. Now, why the limited forms of democracy? Again, you go from pre-modern to modern. Modern, you have European colonialism. Colonial powers were not about creating strong civil societies and democratic institutions. Independence comes. You have modern nation states. Artificial boundaries, therefore fragile. Who are the rulers? Kings, military, ex-military. Therefore, what we have in most Arab and Muslim countries are, in fact, governments that create a culture of authoritarianism, not of democracy. On the other hand, in recent years, along with some of the experiments, the push from below on the part of many critics of regimes is to criticize them by, in fact, what you might call democratic standards, to call for more political participation, more accountability, rule of law. Iran is a perfect uh, example of that struggle within a society. How, how well that will move ahead is very much up for grabs. A lot of it has to do with the nature of regimes. If you continue with the kinds of regimes we have, it means that that impacts on your educational system, both secular and religious, the seminaries. It impacts on your media. It impacts on your public space, on your civil societies. And in some Muslim society, uh, countries, political parties, trade unions are banned or restricted. And so a lot of it has to do with how do these societies develop and... What role do European and, let's say, American governments play mm -hmm. in terms of either reinforcing authoritarian regimes or reinforcing the need for broader political participation? And, and one could really make the argument, I guess, that, that our hands are not completely clean with regard to some of the regimes uh, that uh, we uh, support in the region because of, of national security uh, concerns, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, I remember uh, after the Gulf War, um, several of us were on a panel at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And uh, a colleague whom I often debate with and strongly disagree with um, made the statement, I don't understand. Why didn't Muslims turn more against the Soviet Union? You know, why is there more anti-Americanism? After all, they were, they're unbelievers, you know, the, the mm -hmm. Soviets, and, you know, we're believers. To which a member of the State Department said to the person, uh, look, the reality of it is what our foreign policies are. What governments have we been associated with? Why did you have such a strong reaction on the part of some or many Iranians during the Iranian Revolution. Well, there was a memory of the role that uh, the United States played um, in uh, keeping the Shah on the throne when the Shah was, was driven into exile, bringing him back, the role of the CIA, the role of our military. Uh, similar situation in terms of uh, anti-Americanism in the Muslim world today. It has to do with a lot of our foreign policy. It has to do very much with the roles that we play, the, the support that we give to governments, whether it's uh, Israeli-Palestinian or it's talking today in terms of Russia vis-a-vis -vis Chechnya. Uh, President Bush was very clear 
uh, before he became president, in chiding Russia with regard to the Chechnyans. You look at the policy today. Uh, where where uh, are we in terms of our attitude towards Iraqi sanctions, whether it's uh, Clinton or Bush? Uh, you know, where where are we when it comes to talking about the problems with Pakistan, but not sufficiently India when it comes to uh, Kashmir? Our support for many authoritarian regimes in terms of uh, military support. I mean, in, in many of these countries, they see our aid as not an aid that is given for a country to defend against the outside, mm-hmm. but an aid that is often used against its own population. We often have played a role not only with our aid, but also in selling the equipment and in training mm-hmm. security forces, military, etc. So that's not lost sight of. Uh, let's talk about uh, some examples as you do in your book uh, Unholy War, and I should show it, Unholy War, uh, Terror in the Name of Islam. You, you focus on, on uh, three moderates who uh, in, in, in different settings, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, uh, uh, are uh, trying to come to terms, uh, and, the, and the president in, in Iran trying to come to terms to deal with some of these issues of democracy and so on. And, and uh, again, we don't focus on them. We don't see the constraints that they're operating under, what they're trying to achieve. For example, the, the president uh, in Iran in, in trying to, to bring democracy I- even in, in the context of this clerical rule. I think that Iran provides an interesting case because uh, you know, we know the, the reign of the mullahs. Uh, we know what happened uh, post uh, uh, post-revolutionary time, both under Khomeini, immediately under Khomeini, and then, and then his successes in terms of restrictions. But I think what we lost sight of was, however restricted, Iran uh, moved to a point where there were regular parliamentary elections. Again, restricted, but regular parliamentary elections. Uh, where, in fact, after a struggle about women's role in society, and there's been an ongoing struggle, in fact, uh, women in terms of public space are visible, they function in jobs, etc. Khatami is a reflection not just of his reformist thought, and many would say that uh, he increasingly has, has failed as a reformer in terms of being able to get the right leverage, he's a reflection of the society itself. A significant number of Iranians, young people, women and others, want a more open society, more political participation, more accountability. And indeed, some want it with a religious flavor or character, and some want religion to be pushed into private space. But we certainly see uh, during the Khatami period, a real uh, attempt to open up a debate and to press for broader democratization. Similarly, if we jump over to Indonesia, I mean, it's interesting that after Suharto went, you had democratic elections. And in those first democratic elections, um, the leader of uh, one of the largest Islamic organizations in the world, the Nahdlatul Ulama, that has maybe 35 million people, Abdurrahman Wahid, was democratically elected. And indeed, when he was somewhat pushed out, um, the democratic uh, process uh, continued in Indonesia. Now, it's in fits and starts, it's fragile, uh, but it's clear that it's there. And, and I think that that's what becomes important. The same thing is true of Malaysia. Uh, I wrote about Malaysia five years ago and saw a far more rosy picture. It's gone through a much more limited form of democracy in recent years. But I think that there are pressures within the society to move forward. The same is now happening uh, in Turkey uh, in, the, in the recent elections. A group called the Justice and Development a Party, AK, 
uh, which has Islamist roots, but now has cast itself more broadly, almost as one talks about Christian Democrats as sort of Muslim Democrats. They, in fact, uh, succeeded in elections so that you now they have their uh, first, they have their own prime minister in terms of uh, control of the government, and they and they are the predominant uh, force in the parliament. Um, these experiments are taking place. The reality of it is that while there are reformers they are pushing for these reforms, uh, democracy is a messy game, as I try to tell people. Mm-hmm. You know, we forget that the American Revolution was followed by the Civil War, even bloodier. Mm-hmm. Um, we forget the French Revolution and the post-French Revolution. So we, we shouldn't be surprised, particularly when you're coming out of authoritarian cultures, that we're going to see um, a lot of failures along with the gradual kind of success. It's going to be a struggle both at the intellectual level and at the political level. We forget when we talk about the Reformation and the Enlightenment, we tend to think that it was just an intellectual conversation. Mm-hmm. Luther and the Pope and <laughs> Calvin right. sat around. That's there were religious wars. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, at, at the local level, at, at, at the, the level of a, a Turkey or a, a Iran, very interesting, complex things are going on, uh, sometimes more subtle than, than we can understand. But, but at the global level, uh, uh, help us understand the extent to which the extremist, the, the Osama bin Laden type, has, uh, has a monopoly uh, or the question is, does he have a monopoly on the global identity of Islam, or is that just the way we're perceiving it? How, how has all of this come together, where Islam as a, as a force internationally is m- perceived or misperceived in, in, in the format, in the form of, of Osama and Al-Qaeda? I think there are a couple of things. I think, number one, uh, in general, Islamic movements, whether mainstream or extremist, primarily, particularly in the past, grew up within a particular country, and they were responding to their countries, to their regimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you see that, uh, certainly in the case of uh, the right-hand man of Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Egyptian. Mm-hmm. Uh, both grandparents were university rectors, father the dean of a pharmacy school, Ayman a physician. He joins one of the most extremist groups in Egypt. His enemy is the state. Later on, he goes global. Okay. The reality today is that you have movements that are both national, but also you have movements that are international. Mm-hmm. And certainly, uh, what 9-11 pointed out to us was that many of the movements were going global post-Gulf War, mm-hmm. local as well as global, and it really exploded with 9-11. The risk post-9-11 uh, is that, in fact, uh, Osama has and continues to be a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain lure in terms of the attraction. Osama uh, is seen by many as, look, I mean, this is somebody who came from a privileged family, a wealthy family, who had a good education, and gave it all up to go off and fight the good war in Afghanistan. And then later on, at the Gulf War period and post-Gulf, took on his own government when he saw that the, the, this Amada was coming and warned that it would come and, and not leave, that it would become, have a, a disproportionate amount of influence and presence in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. Um, and Osama played to many of the grievances, not only of extremists, but grievances of the mainstream uh, in, in, in what they see as uh, the double standard, uh, in which they see the West not living up to its own standards when it comes to the Muslim world. Okay? Mm-hmm. Whether it's promotion of democracy, Arab-Israeli conflict, you name it, Iraqi sanctions. Okay? Uh, now, what do we see post-9-11? Post-9-11, 
initially, you see a Muslim world that, that sees, even the mainstream of the Muslim world, sees uh, an America that is leading a war against global terrorism. However, having taken or moved against Osama and al-Qaeda, and then decided that, no, we've got to expand the war to Afghanistan, doesn't stop there. But, mm-hmm. but says in the name of the war, we begin to talk about second frontiers. Then we get axis of evil kicks in. Then we get the uh, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we talk about also suddenly moving from disarmament to regime change to saying that it's really to promote democracy. Mm-hmm. And so that means that uh, we also become critical of our, of our allies, even, albeit authoritarian regimes, but our close allies. What happens is that that can play into the extremists that say, see, uh, it's an unfocused war, it's a unilateral, it's a new empire, and look at what's happening. Mm-hmm. The agenda is not simply to address this issue or that issue. It's open-ended, and it's going to be one country determining or redrawing the map of the Muslim world. Now, it's interesting that that concern and criticism is also coming out of some of our European allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we see then is... Uh, both the extremist, if we're not careful, playing to this and perhaps attracting from what would have been mainstream those who become more and more disenchanted, marginalized, and alienated. This is one of the risks of, let's say, an attack against Iraq and then particularly depending on what we do in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And we also see emerging, which I think should be troubling to America in terms of its future, the fact that when you look at polls, not just in the Muslim world, but in the non-Muslim world, in Europe and other places, a high percentage of anti-Americanism and a strong sense or fear that America is and sees itself as an imperial power. Mm -hmm. Even an imperial power with a religious destiny. This is one of the concerns that some have in terms of President mm-hmm. Bush and the role of uh, the Christian right. Mm-hmm. So, so how can we have uh, our, a foreign policy that is subtle enough to understand the complexities of this world? Because what you're suggesting is that uh, uh, you know, a uni, uh, in a unipolar world, the U.S. Uh, deciding that it will determine where to preempt, where we perceive there is a threat. A lot of these places may be in the Muslim world. We'll be inter- uh, intervening, uh, and after intervening, we'll seek to democratize in, in terms of uh, the way we see democracy as opposed to the Islamic world. So, so what is the answer in, in bringing a, a more subtle understanding uh, to uh, what our foreign policy should be in this part of the world? I think First of all, I think uh, we need to be more focused in defining what it is we're doing, mm-hmm. uh, what that global mission is. I mean, a war against global terrorism could be an unending war. There's always going to be some global mm-hmm. terrorism out there. Um, I think also we have to be very uh, more focused. Supposedly, initially, it was to go after Osama and al-Qaeda. The danger now is that we will simply conflate that with Whatever. Regimes that we don't like mm-hmm. or that don't like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and say that this means that we need to move, ratchet that into regime change. But I think that initial positive signal was given by the Secretary of State a few months ago. It actually was a policy that he announced about a year, year and a half ago, but it wasn't announced all that publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a policy that, that did say publicly that, look, our public diplomacy is not just going to be about public relations mm-hmm. and telling people what America is about or you know why they misunderstand this but we're going to deal with foreign policy issues and he said 
you know, he admitted that the United States had not often listened when it came to the issue of democratization. It hadn't listened to many people in the, in the area. He also said that we would be open to seeing more democratization, and even if that meant that parties would be elected that might not be our preferred party, mm-hmm. that parties that uh, might be quite independent in terms of the way that they dealt with us. He also said that part of that, therefore, would mean that we would d- deal with a political, economic, and educational reform, because these are the conditions that encourage extremism. And he said, in light of the Turkish elections, I believe, that the United States was open to Muslim parties or activists, again, the presumption being as long as they're functioning with a mainstream society. To what extent we will actually pursue that as a policy is the real challenge and how we're going to do that. Or will it simply be seen by cynics Mm -hmm. as a rationale being laid down as we moved from saying disarmament, regime change, and then suddenly said, no, no, the real purpose is to liberate Iraq, establish democracy, and let that be an example to the rest of the Middle East, and then to go on and promote it there. Mm-hmm. I think we're, we're, these are very tricky waters mm-hmm. that uh, the United States uh, will be in for the foreseeable future. Uh, what are the key uh, resources for the extremists uh, to the extent that they attempt to uh, uh, monopolize the, the Islamic identity, to hijack uh, the religion, seems to be tied up with the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict and our uh, inability to uh, see this as a problem uh, for the uh, Islamic world, separate from uh, you know the, the the radicals who want to hijack the religion, mm. talk a little about that 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 uh, 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 sensitivity to that issue uh, uh, as one tries to create uh, a global Islamic identity that's separate from what the terrorists might want it to be. I think that what extremists do is they exploit real issues. And that's always been the case. Real issues that are out there that both mainstream Muslim societies are concerned about as well as extremists. And those issues have everything to do with political participation as well as American foreign policy. And certainly the Arab-Israeli conflict has been there. In fact, what extremists would say today, but there are mainstream that say, say it too, you know, the Bush administration backed away from the real conflagration Mm-hmm. the real violence and terror that's being committed by both sides in Israel and Palestine and turns to Iraq you know, mm-hmm. in, in the interim. And so I think that extremists play off that. Extremists play off a long resentment among both mainstream as well as extremists with regard to not what America stands for and the West stands for, but the difference between that and what is seen as a lack of balance in our our foreign policy with regard to the Muslim world in general and the Arab-Israeli conflict in particular. And a sense of saying, look, there is not a a balance or a parity Mm -hmm. in terms of American foreign policy when it comes to this region. And so, for example, extremists can continue to say something like, look, um, when Sharon and the military went into the West Bank and Gaza, the Secretary of State and the President were very quick to say this must stop in a matter of days, three, four days, eight days. And in fact, the United States did what it hadn't done in the past. It moved in the UN working on two resolutions to say, in effect, cease and desist. But at the same time that happened, in New York, President Bush in Washington is saying Arafat is responsible for terrorism, and certainly Arafat should, should be held responsible for the failures of his regime, but says Sharon is a man of peace. Mm-hmm. And in the interim, they would say, months have gone by 
and no longer is there an attempt to put any restraints. There is an attempt to limit, as it should be limited, the suicide bombing and, 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 and the, you know, the, the killing of the innocents. But there isn't an attempt to limit the violence and terror on the other side that is being perpetrated in Israel-Palestine. And that is an issue across the Muslim world. And that, and that is what Muslims know about and see. We forget that in recent years, they often, until recently, they see more than we see. That is, in the Arab and Muslim world, you no longer have to depend on the American media or the European media to tell you what's going on. You have Al Jazeera mm-hmm. and similar. Mm-hmm. And every day people can watch whether they're having coffee in the morning or tea in the afternoon. They can be watching live what's going on. What we tend to see in America is the horrendous scene of the effects of suicide bombing. We don't see the horrendous scenes in the West Bank and Gaza. We don't see the use of Apache helicopters and F-16s mm-hmm. and American bulldozers to bulldoze homes. Those images and visions go out and the extremist can seize upon that sense of uh, outrage that mm-hmm. many feel uh, and, and play to it. And you see this. I've come back from the Gulf and other places. It's not just among young Islamists. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, it's often among the young dis contented in the next generation who look at their own governments and see them as corrupt, see many people as not standing up for something, and they look at somebody like Osama and he becomes a, a Robin Hood character. Mm-hmm. Wrongly, but is perceived you know, as somebody who takes on mm-hmm. with his mouth, mm-hmm. but also, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, across the board uh, you know, with his actions. And I think that's what we are dealing with today. Uh, we began this discussion talking about your discovering of, of the third uh, uh, faith, Islam, uh, alongside Christianity and Judaism. I'm curious, as, as somebody who's thought a lot about religion, is it fair to say that that in some ways fundamentalism, uh, extreme fundamentalism in all three religions, is 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 a is a major problem of modernity these days that that Absolutely. is across the board. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, we forget it's, uh, in recent decades there's been a religious resurgence and it's mainstream in most faiths. But you have this fundamentalist. The way I like to put it is as follows. Those people we call fundamentalists are generally people who subscribe to a, um, what at the end of the day is a rather exclusivist theology. They see themselves as right and therefore if I'm right you're wrong. Mm-hmm. We're the forces of good, forces of evil, forces of God, forces of Satan. Um, and that exclusivist theology tends to be weak on pluralism and on religious tolerance. That doesn't mean they, they're going to kill other people. They just know other people are wrong, and often for many of them, they know that when, the next, when you die, you're going to go to hell. It doesn't mean I feel I have to dispatch you to hell. You see? The extremist is the one who basically takes this exclusivist theology, this kind of polarized worldview, harnesses it into a should, and says, no. If we have the truth and you represent untruth, we're the army of God and you're the army of Satan, then we have an obligation to pursue. And that struggle is not just you know, a, a struggle of words and of missionaries, etc. It becomes an armed struggle. And of course, they, they dovetail it with political, social, and economic grievances. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you see. And so, for example, the assassin of Mr. Rabin could be somebody who would pour over religious texts Mm-hmm. to be able to find some way to read a religious text or find some writer to then legitimate mm-hmm. 
the grievance. Mm -hmm. And he was he was Jewish, actually. And he was, he was Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, your institute is uh, addressing, in a way, some of these problems on the domestic side, uh, looking at, at the promotion of a, of a Christian-Islamic uh, uh, dialogue. Tell us a little about you know, that agenda and, and uh, uh, what it is attempting to achieve and the possibilities there. Our center was created in 1993 within the Wall School of Foreign Service. And the full title of the center is Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding, History and International Affairs. Mm -hmm. So although we do some of it, we're not primarily interested in theological dialogue. Right. Um, and we, we address the whole issue of the relationship, therefore, in history and international affairs, past and present. So we run programs domestically and internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, we run them in the United States, we run them in Europe, we run them all over the Muslim world. Uh, we speak and write um, about uh, contemporary issues. Um, we write briefing papers, we write books that deal with the role of Islam in Muslim politics uh, with regard to gender issues. Uh, we work with uh, think tanks, we work with religious groups, universities, and even governments running workshops and conferences all over the world. And we do an awful lot with the media, domestically and internationally. Mm -hmm. And many, uh, for many of us, our writings are translated not only into European languages or Chinese and Japanese, but into Muslim languages. Mm -hmm. And so we attempt an engagement not only in Washington and across America, mm -hmm. but in fact we, we attempt uh, this kind of engagement uh, internationally. So, so in a way what, you, what you're really talking about is, is elevating the consciousness uh, in the same way that your uh, consciousness was elevated as you began your, your pursuit of scholarly studies. Precisely. I mean, our whole idea is really to open up that window. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to try to say to people, you know, yes, you know something, mm -hmm. but often it's that something that's coming through through what I call the explosive headline events. Because the media is about grabbing your attention and selling newspapers. You know, it's not about what the average person is doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, or, you know, wh where the average person is coming from. And trying to, for example, say to people, anti-Americanism is broad-based in the Muslim world, but it's also broad-based outside. But anti-Americanism in Europe and, and in the Muslim world does not mean hatred of America. However... Mm -hmm. That anti-Americanism does, in the hands of extremists, become a hatred of America that, in fact, advocates violence. But to make those kinds of distinctions. In a way, we're doing what post 9-11, the Bush administration tried to do in some of its public diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, it didn't address sufficiently the foreign policy issues. But when it said, we want to explain to people because we believe that people out there really don't understand the whole picture. They don't really know what America is about. Well, we're trying to kind of broaden that picture on all sides to the extent that we can. One final question uh, requiring a short answer. Uh, how would you advise students uh, to prepare for a future where international politics is going to be important, the Islamic world is going to be important, and, and we have to deal with the, uh, the challenges posed by uh, America's enormous power in the world? I think students are positioned today in a way that they weren't before. Post 9-11 is meant, whether it's the curriculum um, or our media, um, a far uh, more uh, visible set of opportunities to learn more. And students ought to be more motivated. I mean, after America was attacked, and it is part of their future. And this isn't a war that's being fought over there. So I basically say to students, you know, you have an obligation as a citizen, let alone the opportunity as a student, to uh, explore international affairs and to attempt to make uh, your contribution. 
Uh, on that note, uh, we're very pleased to have had you here today, and, and uh, uh, thank you very much for joining us for this Conversation with History. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you very much for joining us today.